0: I would like to welcome everyone to the final session of this class that we have had over 80 people join us for, and that's just on Zoom. We know that you're also watching on Facebook Live and Jerisha Live, and we're very glad to have you with us learning about King Solomon and his demons with Rabbi David Silver.
1: Okay, thank you very much. Before I start, I just wanted to thank Noah who's been a uh, excellent uh, volunteer for us and really has done a lot of good work. Thank you so much for your work. It's really been very helpful and uh, very good. Hope you continue to be helpful in the future and thank you for all the good work you've done. Okay, so uh, let us begin. Today's the last session of King Solomon and his demons. So last week we started a Gemara in Gitin, which I think is quite an amazing, uh, presentation. We didn't finish it though. So I, what I'd like to do is finish that tomorrow, and then to look at just some of these Tanakh from the book of Murachim to end on a uh, positive note and uh, say something about Shlomo's building the temple and Shlomo's understanding of the temple, two different things. The story that we saw last week had to do with Shlomo's desire to get a hold of this shamir, which seems to be some kind of a worm that is able to cut through stone. almost a magical kind of thing. And he's trying to find this thing. And what we saw last week was the ends that Shlomo will go to, to secure the shamir. And we spent all our time on that, pointing out that his uh, his behavior, his actions to secure the shamir are problematic in so many different ways. That's number one. But more than just being problematic, they in a sense are recalling some of the uh, story of Shlomo that appears in the beginning of Murachim, which itself is problematic. And the Talmudic Agada is in a sense playing off that. So for example, to give one example, uh, in the second chapter of Murachim, when David is dying, so he instructs his son Shlomo what to do in order to secure the throne. And two of the things he tells him specifically are to kill Yoav, who was David's main general throughout his life, and also to kill somebody named Shimmi Ben-Gera. Shimi Ben-Gera is the, one might say, the spokesperson for the tribe of Benjamin. And when David is fleeing Yerushalayim after the Absalom rebellion, Shimi meets him on the way out and curses him. And David's men say to David, why should we let him do that? Let me go and kill him. David says, no, no. If he's cursing me, God tells him to curse me. Don't, don't, uh, don't harm him. And then when he comes back to Yerushalayim, David returns. Again, Shimei appears. And again, they want to kill him. And David says, no, we're not going to kill him. And he swears to Shimei that he's not going to harm him. He swears to him. But the last thing David, David does is to instruct Shlomo, that is this fellow named Shimi ben cursed me with a terrible curse. I swore I wouldn't kill him, but you're wise. You'll figure out a way to kill him. And that's what does happen. Shlomo figures out a way to kill him without getting into the specifics of how. But I think anybody reading the story will ask the question, first of all, even if technically speaking, David hasn't violated the oath, he has certainly violated the spirit of the oath. And one might go even further and say that it's more than just the spirit. If I swear I'm not gonna do something, presumably that means I'm, I won't do it myself, nor will I instruct anybody else to do it. So in short, the violation of the oath, which is a central feature of, 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 of the book of Shmuel's discussion of David, but at the end of the day, the one who causes the oath to be violated is Shlomo. Shlomo's the one who has Shimi killed, now, in the, uh, in the, in the Agadawi here, the way he secures this uh, Shamir is he discovers that the Shamir, he captures the demon, the, the king of the demons, Ashmodai, Dai. And the king of the demons says, I don't have the Shamir, but the minister of the sea entrusts it to a Duchifat. We'll get to the Dukhifat in a minute. And the Dukhifat guards the Shamir. And in fact, the, the Gemara says he uses the Shamir to cut the mountains and to make places habitable for, for, for people. He's busy making the world a, world a habitable place, which the Gemara says elsewhere is a big mitzvah. That's what he does. And Shlomo, and he's sworn to the minister of the sea to return the Shamir. And Shlomo maneuvers it in such a way that the Duhifat, uh fails to secure the Shamir, he doesn't watch it properly, it's captured from him, after which point he goes and he kills himself, having violated the oath. So first of all, the story is problematic in the sense, one might ask, is, is, is acquiring the Shamir, does that justify violating an oath made in God's name? And secondly, it's interesting that the violation of the oath itself, is something which is highly problematic in the kinship of David and also by extension Shlomo. So it's interesting always, and my my, my larger point, and this may seem obvious to many of you, but believe me, it's not obvious in the university world that these Agadot don't live in a vacuum. They do go off in many of their own directions, that's for sure. But they're also using biblical texts and they're moving from there, and they're expanding, and they're interpreting, and they're inventing, but at its core, many of the Agadot are rooted in the in the in the, in the biblical text. So that, for example, what we've seen is that in the in the biblical text, Shlomo marries Paolo, Shlomo marries Paro's daughter. The Agadah talks about Paro's daughter, that he's partying with power's daughter all night. He's sleeping on the keys. Of the of the temple, you can't open the temple, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which is the Agadic view. But it's also true that you can find it within the biblical text. And just to make one last point about this, this particular Agadah talks about Ashmolai, who's the king of the demons. One might say a Satan, but in the in the biblical text, the Book of Kings talks about two people that are, that are that are Shlomo Satan. Two people that are the satan, and they take refuge in the land of Egypt, no less. And so, in the Agada, we have a, a a demon as a sat. We have a kind of Satan in the in the Agada, a non-human Satan. But the non-human Satan is simply a mirror image, one might say, of the of the of the human Satan. In any event, what we have to ask is: Shlomo has finally secured the Shamir, having done all kinds of things that. I think we can say are highly problematic, and we scroll down, um, scroll down a lot more, let's see how far we got last time, we got to the point where Shlomo asks uh, Ashmodai, what's so special about you, that's right here, Shlomo said to him, listen, he quotes a verse from the Torah, what is your why does, why does the verse praise your abilities and powers over those of human beings? What's so special about you? So, now we're up. This is what we got last week. I wanted to finish this. Then I'll take comments and questions and insights. And then we'll complete it with the going back to the biblical text, Shlomo's prayer upon building the uh, temple. And I wanted to try to tie that in with some of the Agadot that we have studied together. So, Ashmaudai says to him, Shilta So Ashbaday says to Shlomo, take the, uh, take the chain, the chain has God's name on it. Take the chain and um, that grave with God's name off me and and give me your and give me your ring with God's name engraved. And uh, I'll show you how my strength. So Shlomo does that. He takes off the chain, he gives him the ring, and Ashmodai swallows the ring, eats the ring. And he's so big, after he does this, he has one wing in the heavens and one wing on earth. So Ashmodai sort of spans heaven and earth. Remember that we saw earlier that he spends half his, before Shlomo kidnaps him, he spends half his days in the Beit Midrash Sharmalah and half his days in the Beit Midrash shamata. That's how he spends his time. Okay, so now he then throws Shlomo Arba Mea Parsi a great distance, he throws him away at which point Shlomo says, and the Agatha quotes the verse from Kohelet b'chol sheyamol What is, the prophet is there for a person who toils under the sun Okay Now let's keep on scrolling down Five now the Gemara says, with regard to a different verse in, in the book of Kohelet, "V'zal yachol amali." What is the meaning of the question, "V'zal yachol amali"? So, from the Agatha is going to interpret this. What what remains of my, of my king, kingship is that, is this? So, Rav and Shmuel typically disagree with each other in the Talmud, in the halakhic sections and the Aggadic session. One says it refers to his coat and one says to his staff. So they're discussing two different, possibly two different aspects of kingship that Shlomo retains. In any event, but this is all that's left. I was once king of the world, right? Shlomo, the whole world is coming to see Shlomo and now he's out. So it says Shlomo would go, would go from door to door. He walks from one house to the next. And whenever he would go, he would say in the first verse in, in the book of Kohelet, Ani shlomo, not the first verse, but the first chapter. Ani shlomo, shlomo, melech I, it's Ani I Kohelet, actually. The book of Kohelet doesn't have the name Shlomo, but it has the name Kohelet. I'll, I'll come back to that later. The name Kohelet, which I, Kohelet, was king over Jerusalem and they're taking it to mean I once was king in Jerusalem. According to the Agada which is not in the biblical text at all. But according to the Agada, Shlomo has lost the kingship. Shlomo goes into exile. So the Agada picks up the story. We have to get into the head of the Agada. He's no longer king. Who is the king? So Ashmodai is the king. Ashmodai takes his place. So when Shlomo arrives, in, I read the English, when Shlomo arrives at the Sanhedrin, the sages said, an imbecile, does not fixate on one matter. In other words, if, if he's sort of lost his mind, he wouldn't just say one thing over and over again. So therefore, maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe this guy is actually Shlomo Hamel-er. So now we have, they're trying to figure out who is this person claiming to be the king. So Amru so they asked Benayel Ben They asked him, let me ask you something, Benayel. He's sort of in the biblical text. he's Shlomo's hitman. In the book of Shmuel, he's one of David's warriors. He's in charge of the palace guard. So they asked him, does the king, is the king with you? Does the king require you to be with him? Right? does the king require you to be with him? He says, no, no. Then they asked the queens, does the king come to you? in, Yes, the king comes with us. They sent a response to the queens, check his feet. So apparently, the feet of the demons look different. So the queens say, they answer, he always wears socks. We can't tell. The moke kaati comes wearing socks. He covers up his feet. The queens continue discussing the king's behavior. He demands that they sleep with him when they are menstruated. And not only that, he demands that Batsheva sleep with him. Batsheva is Shlomo's mother. And once the Sanhedrin hears this, they say, this can't, be, this can't be Shlomo. This he wouldn't do. He may have a thousand wives, but he's not gonna get involved with Bathsheba. So they bring in Shlomo and they give Shlomo a ring and the ring has God's name on it. When, Ashmodai, when Shlomo enters, Ashmodai sees him, Chazieh and Parach, and he runs away. Then the Gemara adds at the end, hachi, even so, even though he fled, Shlomo was still afraid, as it is written, and now they quote a verse in Shira Shirim. The verse of the third chapter of Shira Shirim, Solomon's bed was surrounded by 60 warriors, holding swords and trained in war. Each one with his sword on his thigh from fear in the night. Very interesting verse. So This is the verse that they're quoting. Notice that in this Agada, they quoted verses from Mishle, they quoted verses from Kohelet, and they quote verse from Shira Shirim. It ends with a verse from Shira Shirim. These are the three books that are ascribed to uh, Shlomo. So there's something going on here. They're, they're all talking the language of Shlomo, including Ashimodai. The first thing Yashmodari says, when he comes back and he sees wine in his pit, he says, "It's a Pasuk and wine is problematic, but he can't withhold himself. And the, the Yagata ends with the following disagreement, Rabbin Shmuel, one said, one of them says, they disagree about Shlomo. One says he was a king, and then he was a Hedyod, he was a commoner, and he never became a king again. Ashmadai threw him out, and he never returned. And the other opinion is what we have, reflected in our agada. He was a king. He was banished from the kingship, and he returned to become the king. Now that's the that's the end of the agada. Let me say two things over here, and then I'll stop and take comments and questions. What is actually going on here? Let me make one observation. Shlomo is thrown out of the kingship by Ashmodai, he's kicked out. But what's interesting is, we don't know how long he's kicked out. Actually, according to one view here, either Rav or Shmuel, one of them said, he was a king and he never returned to the kingship. He was a king and then a commoner and never became a king again. And that's the verse, I was once a king. That's how they're reading, midrashically reading the verse. So what was happening all the time he wasn't the king, a year, three years, five years, who was the king? According to the Agadah, who was the king? Who's running the show? The answer is, the Agadic answer is Ashmoadai. And here's the point I think we have to think about, nobody knows, nobody can tell the difference until they start investigating. If Shlomo doesn't show up, Dai remains the king forever because at the end of the day, what the Agada seems to be suggesting is that the king of Israel and the king of the demons are actually, you can't actually know which one is which. So there's something very interesting over here about Ashrodai, that what the Agada is saying, apart from all the other critiques of Shlomo, yeah, what it's saying is actually in thinking about Shlomo through the eyes of this particular Agada, we could see him as a kind of Ashmodai figure as a kind of demonic figure, that the Satan actually, who's out to get Shlomo, one might say, is none other than a, than a reflection of Shlomo himself. That's, I think, what this Medrish is, is actually getting at. And I just wanted to say one more thing before I stop here for a moment and and uh, get to the part two. Last week we came across this duhfi So I and uh, probably some other people I think Judy also looked this up and so did I and someone commented less that the du is the national bird of a, of, a, of Israel believe it or not that's a kind of a vote and they determined that the do fat should be the national bird of Israel I might say that nowadays having a vote in Israel and determining anything is already a miracle but it's a strange choice the du is a strange choice for one thing it's a bird in the torah that is that, that is not kosher the Torah lists the birds you're not allowed to eat, and, and the duchi fat, and after the duchi is the is the ataret, the bat, which means we may not call a bird, but it, it, we classify it as a bird in the Torah. So it's a strange choice. But what is the duchi fat? I was very curious because this translation said wild rooster. But when I looked up duchi fat, I came with a different one, and I also looked at the translations. I know very little. I would say nothing about birds. But the translation I saw when I looked up Duhifat in in more than one place is a Hupu. H-O-O-P-O-E. And there's a picture of the Hupu. And what was interesting was that the Hupu, as you can see the picture here, very nice, the distinguishing feature of the Hupu is the Hupu's crest. Now, another word for crest in English is crown. So it struck me that the Duhifat is the one appointed by the Tsar of the Yam. And what's interesting is, and the Duhifat, this bird with this crown, is busy making the world a uh, habitable place. And I began to wonder about this Agada, who brings in the Duhifat, because essentially, if you think of it as the bird with the crown, okay, then what we have in the Agada is, we have... The king with the crown, that's Shlomo. We have the demon wearing the crown, that's Ashmolday, and we have the uh, the bird, the, the, the crown part part of nature, who also wears a crown. And perhaps this agada wants us to think about the relative behaviors of these three kings. The Dukhifat probably comes out the best of the bunch. The Dukhifat has an oath, which it zealously tries to keep and spends his time trying to make the world a better place, a, a habitable place. Um, the behavior of Shlomo is very nuanced. And yes, he's the builder of the temple, etc. But the description of him here, and in fact, the way he builds the temple is highly problematic. He builds the temple, the way Pharaoh builds the storehouses in Egypt, the Oremus Kenote. And then you have Ashmo Dai, who seems to be a, a, a kind of Shlomo figure, a reflection of Shlomo, spends all his days studying Torah. He's very wise. He sits both in the earthly-based midrash and the heavenly-based midrash. So apart from the actual text of the Agada, which I thought was very interesting, I also wonder about the, the characters that the Agada marshals to tell its story. And if the Duhifat is actually part of the story here, not just that we cause this animal to violate its oath and then which 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 uh leads to his death but uh i wonder about the idea of the king in general whether at the core of the Agada is something about kingship in general and specifically the human king in the form of shlomo so let me stop here for a moment and take comments or questions anybody everybody's welcome to speak up
2: i would like to add something yes Um, in case you wonder what was the end of Ashmedai. So according to very ancient uh, Ashkenazi tradition, I mean, we have a manuscript for this, Uh, Ashmedai was killed in the pogroms of the first crusade. He, He tried to stop the pogroms to save the Jews, but he was killed. So this was the 1096? Yes. So from then on, we don't have to worry about him anymore. I see,
1: <laughs> right, right. So it's a, that's an interesting tradition about Ashmodai, which I think fits fairly well into the, I mean, he's represented here. He's a demon.
2: But he's he a seems king to be or a or rather demon? Uh, demon. The king. He's, the king, the, he's the king of the demons.
1: He's the king of the demons. He's the king of the demons, the same way Shlomo is the, uh, is the king of, he's the earthly king, and Ashmodai is the heavenly, Kind of heavenly king, but he's also on earth. He lives in both places. He's on heaven and he's in earth, which may mean he's in neither place. But the representation of him, I think, is—you know—he's a—he's very wise. And that the stories that we didn't get into, the four things that he sees, which are very interesting—he's very—he—he—he he, he understands the way the world works and the way the world should work. So that's a very, it's very solomonic in that respect. And someone sent me an email this week suggesting we could see Ashmodai as a kind of alter ego of, of, a, of a Shlomo. And I think that probably is very much on point. I think that's the idea of this particular agada. Does someone else have something to say here?
2: I agree that that Ashmodai is an avatar of Shlomo. It's 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 so clear now. First, you he, the first time I heard it last week, I thought this is cuckoo. And then thinking about it more and more, and lining everything up, the the Agadap the Agadist is using an alter ego to say what he wants to say about Shlomo, who uh, who debased himself in his activities. That's the king who becomes the commoner. And Rav says. And he never and he never did teshuvah. He never came back. And Shmuel says, uh, but he did do teshuvah in the end, and he didn't come back. A kind of Menashe kind of story.
1: Right. It's, like, it's very. I mean, the position that he actually, because there's no evidence from as far as I could see from the Bible that he loses the kingship. On the contrary, he retains it during his lifetime. But this idea that, at the Agada suggests that actually he's banished from the kingship. Um, is I find this a striking one. It's, uh, <laughs> so it's, you know, the other interesting thing about this Agada which we didn't get into, is this idea of the, uh, of the seal. Each one has a seal, which was also very striking. Ashmodai seals up his bar, and he seals up his, his pit, you know, and Shlomo has the seal. And the way Shlomo uses God's name in order to capture Ashbodai, which I think is also, problematic. I think that the Agadah sees that as problem, using God's name to secure the Shamir, which is unclear in the first place whether it's actually needed. Shlomo wants to be excessively righteous, but so the whole thing is I think quite amazing. Uh, yes, it, someone else has something to say? Yes.
0: Is it, uh, is it possible that the Dukhifat is also another aspect of Shlomo? It's the the pure part that truly wants to build the um, uh, the Beit Hamikdash, but he doesn't succeed uh, because the other aspects of him, uh, the Ashmedai and the power king, take over. But it's the pure Shlomo uh, represented.
1: Could be because the truth of the matter is that Shlomo, in his name, his name of Shlomo, so he suggests this Shlomo is. Has- Two significances. One is peace. There's no wars in his in his lifetime. There's no foreign enemies. All the other nations are in at peace with Shlomo. And the other idea of Shalaim, which is completion. He is the completion of David's kingship. He's the one. So one could certainly see it that way. That the Duhifat is the king who tries to make the world a habitable place. And then the, if you read it, you know, uh, as you suggest. It's a question about what the Agada is saying that within Shlomo's own person, there are these competing, competing pieces of Shlomo. And this Agada I think is for the most part has a somewhat negative view, but you could see these, this other king, the king of makes the world habitable, as once again, because Shlomo does do that under Shlomo, people living, it says under their trees and they right under the day under the trees, right? Tachat Gafno under the, their vines and under their under their uh, fig trees and, and they're living in peace. So there is peace in Shlomo's kingdom as described in the book of Murachim. by the same token, there's also conscription of people against their will and there's building the temple through force and through power and uh, that's very power-like. So there's these competing elements and I think what the Bawi in general tries to do and thank you for that, observation, I think the Babri is not out to put holes and, you know, to puncture but to burst out bubbles. The bavli is after for the most part uh, a, a nuanced reading of, of, of people and of situations. The bavli is constructed with, around the argumentation about seeing the other point of view. And it wants to sort of fill out the picture. At the end of the day, Shlomo is a person and one can have different takes on Shlomo. There is certainly when it comes to Shlomo and the Babri, some enormous critique. I mean, that's, there's no question about it. By the same token, we shouldn't lose, you know, lose fact to the other side of it. He is the builder of the temple. And I wanted to end with that uh, and say something about at least the biblical text, what it says about Shlomo as a, uh, as a, as a temple builder. Um, okay, so that's the first part of what we have. If there are other comments or questions, I'll stop again. And uh, if we don't get a chance in this last session, you can always send me an e- email at dsilber at trisha.org. I'm happy to try to uh, try to respond. Okay. So I did want to say one thing about Shlomo who builds the temple. David, David wanted to build the temple and David is forbidden to build it for whatever reason. He himself says in the book of Chronicles, David says that I'm a man of war and a man of war can't build the temple. Okay, and there may be other reasons as well in the book of Murachim or Shmuel that emerged, but that's not our topic. In any event, Shlomo builds the temple. And I wanted to make one observation about Shlomo's building of the temple, which also we have encountered in our reading of these various Agadot in the, in the, in the, in the Bavli. And that is, we have to remember that Shlomo is the is the author of three books of the Bible. Um, one is, of course, the book of Proverbs. One is the book of Ecclesiastes or Kohelet. And the third is Shirashirim. Shirim. Now, whether we classify Shirashirim Shirim as a book of wisdom, it's an interesting question. The first two books, Kohelet and Mishlei, obviously fall into the category of what we call wisdom, Jewish wisdom literature. Uh, Shira Shirim would not appear to be wisdom literature, although there are some, uh, some academics who believe that Shira Shirim should be classified as wisdom literature. And one of whom, who well, I happen to have a lot of respect for, I'm talking to her about giving some classes at Trisha, uh perhaps before Rosh Hashanah, on Shira Shirim that she's working on. She's taught before. She, she suggested to me that I don't know what her own view is. But even Shir Ashir, called wisdom there? literature, I'll leave it up to her to discuss. Who are you I, speaking about? I'm talking about. Uh, who am I talking about?
0: Uh, Malka.
1: No, 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 no. Okay. I'll come back to me now. Okay. Uh, and why okay. I'm blocking on it, suddenly, but she's a well, well-known well person. Uh, I'll get. I'll, I'll come back to me any, any any moment. It doesn't matter. The point is, two of the three books are certainly wisdom literature. Uh, it's uh, Adele Berlin. Adele Berlin. So the point is, um, so what? What actually? What actually personifies wisdom literature? What are some of the key elements of wisdom literature? So I'll mention one, uh, one, uh, one key element of wisdom literature. Wisdom literature, book like Mishlei, book like Kohelet. They're not about specifically. Uh, Jews actually. The book of Eof is another example. The book of Eov, who is Eof? Is he is he even Jewish? There's no evidence he's a he's a righteous man. But is he a righteous Jewish man or not? Who who knows? Who knows it it doesn't seem to matter. The wisdom literature is addressing the uh, human condition. So certainly Mishlei and certainly Kohelet and maybe Shira Shirim which addresses some basic also the human condition from a different perspective. So Shlomo is the, is the wisest of all. He's the greatest Chacham who ever lived. He's wise to start with. And he's, to, you know, he's given a kind of, almost a kind of divine supernatural wisdom. That's the, that's the story. So what I wanted to point out is the way this wisdom is reflected in Shlomo's building the temple. That's what I wanted to point out. And I'll take comments and questions and we can stop at this point. So Shlomo, when he builds the temple, he completes the temple, and then he issues, he he has a very, very long speech upon the building of the temple. One of the longest speeches in the whole Bible, which doesn't actually surprise us because everything he does is actually excessive. He, He has a thousand wives, And when he builds the temple, he brings a thousand sacrifices. So it's the same person. The same person who is excessive in one area is the same person who's excessive in a different area of life. And actually, so it's chapter eight actually of the book of Moachim begins with the uh, the following way. I'll read a couple of verses and then we'll jump to the main body of chapter eight. It's a very long chapter. But look at the way chapter eight begins. Oziyakel Shlomo etziknei Yisrael etko roshei hamatot nesiei haavot v'nei Yisrael elamelech Shlomo Yerushalayim v'halot etaron brit Hashem meir David Hitzion. So Shlomo conv- convenes or convokes, they say here, all of the elders of Israel, the tribes and the chieftains. And then it says v'yikalu elamelech Shlomo ko'ish Yisrael and all the people of Israel gathered before King Solomon at the feast in the month of Eitanim, the seventh month. So right away in the first two verses, you have a verb that appears. And that the verb is, kuf heilamid, or it's yakel, And without reading through the chapter, it appears several more times. And it struck me that the name of Shlomo that we have in the book of Ecclesiastes, we call it tohelot. And Kohelet or Melech, that the name Kohelet actually is coming right out of this chapter. He's the one who gathers people together, who brings people together. In the book of Kohelet is to, is to reflect upon life, kind of meditation on life. And here he's gathering all the people to come to the temple and he's going to celebrate with them the building of the temple. But what I would suggest is that it's not just he's celebrating the building of the temple. He's actually going to speak about what the temple means. And if, for example, you look, let's we jump ahead, for example, to verse number 22. In verse 22, and we have Shlomo's reflection upon the temple. And I would say not just reflection on the temple. What Shlomo does, actually, is he actually redefines what the temple means. Because up to this point, if you ask the question, "What is the temple in the uh, in the book of Shemot?" the Mishkan, we just finished reading the book of Shemot, and it complete, it's finishing with the um, it com- it finishes with the building of the temple. The, the instructions to build them are there. Several chapters, six chapters of instructions, six chapters of building. That's how the book ends. And if we ask ourselves the question, "What is the?" point of the sanctuary of the Mishkan. What is its main purpose? Here I would say there could be there are two main purposes and the commentaries may be divided, which is primary and which is secondary, but they're both there. In the Torah, the Mishkan is the place from which God speaks, which God continues to command. And that's how it works in the Torah. God spoke at Sinai and God continues to speak Uh, through the Mishkan, and command commands through the Mishkan. And that is the plain meaning of the Torah. That's not a Midrash. That's the plain meaning of the Torah. The one who pushed that point, which to my view is the main point, but the one who pushed it is none other than the Ramban. And he makes this point in several places that God continues to speak. Sinai is is God speaks publicly. And the Mishkan is where God speaks much more privately. But in each case, God, it's God that's doing the speaking and God is doing the, uh, the commanding. And for the Ramban in general, in general, this is Ramban's view of the world. He tends to, to uh, one might say privilege, as they say nowadays, he tends to put much more stock in that which is done privately than that which is done publicly. His speaker, he talks about the, 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 the hidden miracles of life and recognizing the hidden miracles. So for the Ramban, the Mishkan is the place from which God speaks and God continues to command and, and, and to direct. That's one possible primary understanding of the Mishkan. And the other possibility understanding the Mishkan, which doesn't contradict, certainly true. The Mishkan is the place in which you serve God. You bring sacrifices. The word that's used in the Torah is the word Avodah, related to the word evit, a servant. It's where we serve. That God took us out of Egypt for the purpose of serving God, as God said explicitly to Moshe to tell Paro, three words: Shalach Ami b'yabdumi. Moshe says it several times: Let my people go that they may serve me, and the place of service or the primary place of service, which in the Chumash takes the form of sacrifice, is in fact the uh, the, the Mishkan, the temple. So these, I think, traditionally, when you look at the Bible. Look at the Torah. These are the two different ways to understand the uh, the, uh, the Mishkan. Now comes Shlomo, and he certainly does not negate the idea of sacrifices. He brought a thousand sacrifices himself. But for Shlomo, that's not the primary idea of the, of, the, of, the, of the Mikdash at all. It's certainly not the place in which God continues to speak. He doesn't mention that at all, actually. And sacrifices seem to be very secondary for Shlomo. Shlomo has a different take on the Beit HaMikdash. The Beit HaMikdash for Shlomo has a different purpose. But before we get to the purpose, he makes an observation that is not inconsistent with the Torah, but it's an important observation that he makes. If you look, for example, beginning in verse 22, again, we have the kalchal. neged kol kahal Yisrael, So he raises his hands to heaven. Again, we have the kahal. And he begins to speak to God. He says, O God of Israel, there is no God like you in the heavens above and on the earth below. And then then he continues, we can scroll down some more. I'm fulfilling the promises you made to my father, David. He talks about that, right? Thank thank you for, for keeping the right now. Let's take this verse. First number 20, the 27? It's hard to read it. 27, I believe. Shomel says, says, In truth, can God dwell on earth? Even the heavens, Shemaya, Shemaya, the far the most, uttermost reaches of heaven cannot contain you. How can this house that I built? This is coming from somebody who spent a lot of time building the house. A lot of other people's time too. And it is quite ornate by any standard. Everything he does is ornate. And after he spent seven years building this house with all the gold and everything else and all the hired help and, and all the conscriptions, he turns to God and says, you can't be contained in a house. The heavens can't contain you. How can, in fact, the house that I built contain you? And the next verse, he answers his own question. Verse number 28. So I'm going to repeat something that I've said in the past. Basically, because I like it very much. And I'll tell you what it is. What Shlomo is doing in verse 28, he's saying, I want you, God, to listen to my prayer. He calls his prayer, the cry and the prayer. And what's interesting is that in the Ashkenazic rite, at least the Ashkenazim. So prior to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The Ashkenazim recites Srichot, the penitential prayers. And the, the, the custom of the Ashkenazim, unlike the Eidot Mizrach that started Rosh Chodesh Ewol to say Srichot, the Ashkenazim start on the Saturday night, typically before Rosh Hashanah or the previous Saturday night, depending on the calendar. And the highlight of the Srichot, first night of Srichot, is the so called Pismon, the responsive prayer, the tagline of which is. L'shomoah el well, why did Why did the Ashkenazic tradition choose that tagline for the first night of Shlichov? And I believe the reason is because L'shomoah el-harinah is what Shlomo asked God to do to his prayer. Shlomo stands before the congregation and prays to God. He wants God to listen to his prayer. But the point of God listening to his prayer is that this will set the stage for what Shlomo thinks the purpose of the temple is altogether. Because the purpose of the temple for Shlomo, he makes this as clear as can be, it's not sacrifice. The purpose of the temple for Shlomo is actually prayer. The temple is a collection point for prayers. You can go to the temple and pray, says Shlomo, but as we'll see in a moment, If you're not in the temple precincts, if you're far away or if you're in exile or even a foreign land, you pray via the temple. So what Shlomo is doing here is not just building the temple, he is redefining the temple. When the prophet Yeshayahu said he was preceded by, by, by King Solomon. And what King Solomon is saying, you know, when you begin, when you dedicate something in the temple. One way to dedicate it is to use it for that purpose. So with Shemoa el Arina one might say is Solomon's dedication speech. Dedication in the narrow sense of dedication, that actually he's doing what he hopes the temple will be will be used for, which is a place of prayer. Because after all, God is not in the temple. God is in heaven, in the farthermost corners of heaven, but the God in heaven. Is willing to listen to the to the earthly prayers. So what Shlomo is doing over here, and this strikes me as very as very wise in the sense of wisdom literature. And as we'll see, there's some other other aspects to this which are also very wisdom like. So let's just scroll down some more and let's see what he says over here. He talks about you will hear, right? Look, look at the next verse. <speaking in Hebrew> Says, he talks about himself, your servant, me, my prayer, many and your people, Israel. They will offer prayer towards this place. And you listen, God, in your heavenly abode. God's not in this building, God's in heaven. Give heed and pardon. The tradition that we have. Which is found also in the book of Daniel in Daniel, to pray facing, we pray facing the temple. We actually don't, we, we think we're praying facing Jerusalem, but it's really not Jerusalem. We do face Yerushalayim. But what about if you're in Jerusalem? Or what about if you're living someplace else? I once visited my sister, who lives in the Gush. I said, Which way is east, Ruthie? She says, No, you don't face east, you face north here. Yeah. You're facing you, if you're in Jerusalem, you face the Holy of Holies. If you're in the temple, you face the Holy of Holies. So you, you pray towards the temple, actually. And Jerusalem itself is a, a quasi-temple. But the heart and soul of the temple, the Holy of Holies, that's the direction that you face. And from there, the prayers ascend to the God who's in heaven. In the words of Shlomo, And if you look at this long chapter, when he talks about prayer, you'll see over and over and over again, he has that expression, I'm not going to go through every example of it, but it is clear throughout. Let's just scroll down a little more. He gives different examples of people. Look at the next one, for example, verse 33. When Israel is is routed by their enemy, right? So they're they're far away, right? They, they, They will return to you. They routed because they sinned they will turn back to you. They will acknowledge Hodu Eshemecha. They will acknowledge your name and they will pray in this house. So here's a case where they come to the house to pray. But in the next examples he has, they don't have to be in the house at all because the house is actually symbolic. It's nice to go there. The Torah speaks about going there three times a year or whatever, but you don't have to go there to pray. As long as you face the temple, or have the temple in your consciousness, perhaps. That's good enough. Because after all, God, God isn't... Well, then they look at verse number 35. Let's say in a case where the heavens are shut up, there's no rain, right? Right? And they've strayed, there's no rain, right? And then he continues in 37, if there's a, if there's a famine, right? He has all kinds of terrible things that could happen. Colt to in 38, Colt Chinah, here there's two interesting features. First of all, he talks about communal tragedies, plague. Plague is a communal tragedy, as we know. But then he adds, But then there's personal, everybody has their own personal afflictions. Every individual has, he talks about your people Israel. We'll get to that also. And then he spreads his palms towards this house. There's no suggestion that you actually in the house and God will listen in verse, in the next verse, you will listen in your heaven, which is your abode and you will forgive them, okay? And then he continues, God, you alone understand the hearts of all people. Right? God, you understand every person. And Shlomo makes this point very much a wisdom speech in verse number 41. Shlomo is explicit about this. It's interesting. First of all, he includes the non-Jew. The temple is not a temple just for Jews, for Shlomo. It's a temple for all humanity. God is the creator of of all. And notice something else about Shlomo's speech that's very interesting. Because the idea he emphasizes, which is found in the Torah, is that the temple is the place in which God's name is there. In the words of the Chumash, not that God is there. God's name is there. And Shomo takes that very seriously. It's, it, it's a representation of God. It's not God. Because God cannot be contained. God is in the heavenly abode. The prayers are being listened to in heaven. Tishma shomayim. But the name is there. And people will come from far and wide because they hear about your great name. Now, when you read that verse, you can't help but think about the Book of Kings, about people coming far and wide to hear Shlomo's wisdom, including the queen of Sheba. She's heard how wise he is. The idea that Shlomo is a magnet that attracts the world to hear about Shlomo's wisdom. But in this speech, actually, it's interesting that in this speech, it's not about Shlomo, not at all. It's about God. One might say that everybody sees God in uh, their own image, perhaps. But here you have this person thinking about the temple as a place of prayer. And not a place of prayer only for Jews, but a place of prayer for the world. And actually, if you think about it, it's certainly far removed from any sense that you have in the Chumash, that the Mishkan is a place for the whole world. The Mishkan in the Chumash is deeply connected to this particular people that God has redeemed. That's not to say others can't join. It's not a club, it's not a closed club. But the Chumash doesn't suggest at all. In fact, the only righteous non-Jew, Yitro, Moses' beloved father-in-law, great person, religious person, he leaves before he, he, he leaves before the building of the temple. He leaves before the Ten Commandments. He's sent away by Ishmael. Moshe So Shlomo was taking this in a very different direction. And I would say this is the wisdom side of Shlomo. This is the Shlomo who could write something like Kohelet and could write Mishlei, and perhaps even Shira Shirin. And he's seeing a much, much bigger picture of things. So I think, in terms of the nuance over here, one might say that the book of Murachim, and I think the Agadah as well, understands that there's two sides to Shlomo being it's the old question, you know, universalism versus particularism. Which will, will be one of our themes in our summer collo this summer, because on one hand we are members of we are members of uh, of the world we are part of humanity, and anybody who didn't realize that a, a year ago should realize it now. The uh, COVID virus is non-discriminatory; it affects everybody the same. It's an egalitarian virus, you know. And you realize to what degree we are all human beings, we part, we're all similar to each other. Um, on the other hand, we feel, Israel feels, it has a particular mission in this world. So we are part of the general world, but we have a particular mission, those who choose to be part of that mission. So in the case of Shlomo, on one hand, you have the man who marries a thousand wives. And the Book of Melachim is clear, as is the Agadot, Hesiru et ribo, They cause his, his, his heart to stray from God. That's clear in the it's clear in the Agadah. The Agadah likes to focus more on Pharaoh's daughter, but one doesn't contradict the other. Now, on the other hand, you have this person who sees very very big picture and can see a world in which the entire world is coming to the temple to praise God and to pray, and who sees prayer as part of the human condition. So it's not about sacrifice, and who sees a God who understands every individual person, every person, Person's personal afflictions, so I think here we have something. I think it's very beautiful, actually, um, but I think it's very much with the Agadota picking up on when it comes to Shlomo. Both the critique of Shlomo, but at the end of the day, he is the builder of the temple, and he is very wise. Whether he regains the kingship after Ashmol Day or not is a good question. But you know, that's a, that the, the Agadot has a disagreement. You know. The extent of the uh, of the uh, of the critique does he manage to come back from all this um let me stop here and take comments then i have one final thought about the um about the what we've been studying so if anybody has comments or questions now then i have one last thought about shlomo he's as it's, it's shlomo is
2: Saying here what what mm, the uh, navi will say years and years later the haviotim el beit hashem what, you know what we what we say on yom kippur several times during the davening right.
1: that, that, that's the messianic vision of yeshayahu yes but he's it's, it's, for uh, him it's
2: not messianic it's
1: tomorrow <laughs> well <Yishayu> may <laughs> come tomorrow but it's <laughs> that's the way that was my point before and and, and Yishayahu is very clear. I mean that you know it's for Yeshayahu. Maybe unlike unlike other prophets like Yeheskel, for Yeshayahu it's it's going to be a different world basically, and everybody is, can come. And you know the famous verse about the 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 uh, the uh, sabis the eunuch who comes, and, and God says, no, you have a place with me. Yad vashem told me better than children. Told me, "Banimu banalti, You can be with me. I value you like everybody else. You can be very special to me." Shem olam etenu lo asher You have a name. The name is so identified with the temple, so it's something which I think is, you know, it's very, it's very powerful, and it's, it's all here in 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 shalom's in, in, in Tfila. It's, it's all here. Yes, thank you for that comment.
0: Uh, isn't, it, uh, isn't it also possible that uh this uh, beautiful prayer is a recognition of failure here we spent seven years an incredible amount of uh, uh booty on building something that in the end is is a it it, it it's just an abode and in many ways it's like the duchifat who really is a who has failed you know, is not fil- and in some ways he takes his wisdom and he turns it into something. Then that in the future um, you don't need the building. Uh, we turn towards it even when there's no building.
1: Uh, I think but you it raise a very, a very good question. I've wondered about this for many, many years. Whether in the book of Muachim there is a critique of the of of, of building the temple. I could never get you know for sure whether it's a critique or not because. On one hand, the biblical author seems to take a lot of pride in, in, the, in the building and the beauty of it. On the other hand, as you say, it's very ornate, and the, 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 the Mishkan, it's very beautiful, but it's much more simple. It's a bunch of curtains. There's something about the excess and, and also the way it's built, of course, and you may be right. Whether Shlomo is aware of this or not, whether it's his recognition of his own failures this I don't know. It's very hard to know. The text doesn't really psychoanalyze the characters, but I think the reader can say that the that the prayer presents the temple as a kind of. It's almost secondary. You you you, you try. You can connect to God wherever God may be. And I did want to uh, to pick up on your point. I wanted to conclude with the following observation: This story of Shlomo, the eleven chapters essentially that deal with Shlomo are embedded in the Book of Mulachim. The Book of Mulachim is about exile. It's a description of what happened, how do we end up in exile? So it talks about the division of the kingdom, and then the Northern Kingdom is exiled with the 10 tribes. And then in the end, the two remaining tribes and the temple is destroyed, and the tribes are sent into exile. That's how the book ends actually. And I was thinking that actually Shlomo's prayer actually gives us hope that part of this whole long chapter which is very long and very long prayer what Shlomo is suggesting is something that our tradition picked up and and, and actually runs with what Shlomo talks about in this chapter is praying praying via the temple but actually later in the chapter he goes beyond that praying via the temple says Shlomo and praying via the city that you have chosen and praying via the land. And suddenly, actually, for a book that ends in exile, and the question that concerned the book of Malachim, I think, and certainly concerned that rabbinic tradition without question, was after the temple is destroyed and Israel is in exile, can we still connect to God or not? Because you could argue, look, the temple's destroyed. That that was that connection. God has broken faith with us, we broke faith with God. And what Shlomo suggests in his prayer is that actually the connection to God is not about a temple or space. I'm not suggesting that the land is not important or the temple is not important, but what Shlomo was saying at the end of the day, you wanna to connect, connect to the God who's not actually here because God's abode is in heaven. And that Shlomo's focus on God being in heaven and you can pray to God via a space, you face the temple, whether it's there or not, you face the city, you face the land, is a way of saying that even if this particular connection is broken for a time, there is still a way to to be connected to to God and uh, and to hope for return. As we see in the book of Daniel, he goes out and he prays, he opens up his windows and he faces Jerusalem. Jews have been praying towards Jerusalem for thousands of years. It's already in Safer Danil, probably preceded it. So the point is that in this Book of Exile, I think what Shlomo's prayer does, more than just redefine the temple, is it gives us uh, hope and a sense that we can always keep these connections even if they've been severed in many ways because of, because of exile. And Shlomo himself talks about exile and being distant to being far you can't get to the temple, maybe the temple is destroyed, but you can pray by the temple, through the temple. And the God who was in heaven, because God can't be contained, and the God who sees everything and connects to every individual person as well, can still hear prayer. So this, this is actually, it's interesting, you always come back to the same observation that as we Ashkenazi Millis get into the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur mode, and we're going to be having a lot of prayers. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur are days of prayer. But we start with, with Shlomo's prayer. What Shlomo says, I'm, I'm, I'm dedicating this temple, not through sacrifice. I dedicate it through, through, through prayer. So I did, I'll stop at this point, and I hope with this uh, brief study that we had together of Shlomo, largely through the midrash and through the Agadot, I think it helps cast, a, a, you know, more of a light upon Shomo. There's more to be said, obviously, but we'll stop at this point. Uh, we do have some pre-Pesach classes. I'll let Noah uh, uh, describe those. And then after Pesach, we, have, we will continue with other classes through the summer and hopefully next year as well. Thank you all for participating.